Silence and Answers. 1 Peter 3.15 states, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter commands us to make a defense and to give the reason for the hope. Notice we are to make a defense and give logical reasons for our faith in Christ. Christians are called to make a persuasive case for our faith in Christ. A watching world wants to know, is there an intellectually and emotionally credible case for Christianity? Jesus and the apostles presented compelling evidence and reasoned arguments when they made their case. In like manner, we are called to persuade unbelievers to faith in Christ through powerful, compelling arguments. Therefore, it is critical that we as Christians learn how to craft good arguments for our faith in Christ. You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucrin. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat presents a message he delivered at a conference held at the Wintersburg Presbyterian Church in Los Angeles, California, entitled, Constructing Your Case. In this seminar, he presented practical ways to construct good arguments and explains why good arguments sometimes fail. Let's join Pat now as he presents practical ways to build a compelling case for Christ. You know, it was a few years ago that I was speaking in San Jose at a camp, and I was speaking to the adults and someone else was speaking to the youth, and at the end, they had the youth pastor and I, we met together for dinner. The youth pastor introduced himself and we started talking, and I told him, well, I'm in the arena of apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith and all that. And he said, oh, you don't need apologetics. All you do is, you, you know, you just love them. That's all you need. And I said, oh, is that right? He goes, yeah. You know, youth don't need reasons or explanations. You just got to love them, and that's all. So I said, oh, okay. I was going to question him some more, but, you know, the adults were wanting to talk to me. So I said, okay, well, nice to meet you. Well, he went back to the youth table. Five minutes later, I heard him, I felt him tapping on my shoulder. So I turned around and I said, yes? He goes, uh, we need you at the youth table. I said, why? He goes, well, we were talking about love, sex, and dating. Typical youth stuff, you know. And he said, the youth are asking me, why should I wait till marriage? You know. Why should I obey the Bible? How do you know the Bible is the inspired word of God? How do you know? And he said, so we need you to answer those questions at the table. I wanted to say something kind of smart, like, I thought you said you didn't need this stuff. But the Holy Spirit got a hold of my tongue, and I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll be there in a few minutes. But the adults were continuing to ask me, and I kept dialoguing with the adults. And eventually, he comes back a couple minutes later, and he really hit me hard this time. And he said, we need you at the youth table. And I said, okay, I'll be there. He goes, no, no, no. We need you there now. All right. 1 Peter 3.15 says this. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer, a reason for the hope that you have within you. Notice in that passage, we're called to make a defense, to give logical reasons, to make a persuasive argument for our belief in Jesus Christ. A watching world wants to know, is there an intellectually and emotionally credible case for Christianity? Now, I often hear Christians say, well, you can't reason anyone into believing in Christ. Well, that's false. We do so all the time. And myself and a bunch of my other friends have done that hundreds of times leading people to Christ. 
You see, there's something required even before the gospel, and that is reason or logical thinking. Without reason, we can't function in this world. Logic is required to understand sentences, concepts, and ideas to communicate messages. We use reason all the time in the daily decisions that we make. Why then do we as Christians suddenly say when it comes to faith, you have to just believe? Hey, it's a blind leap in the dark. And we don't feel any need to make our case why people should take us seriously. Jesus and the apostles presented compelling evidence and reason arguments when they made their case. In the book of Acts, Paul would go into the synagogues and persuade the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And in like manner, we are called to persuade unbelievers to faith in Christ through powerful and compelling arguments. Therefore, it is critical that we as Christians learn how to craft good arguments for our faith. Now, good arguments are built on five premises, okay? Number one, they start from true premises and facts. Second, they make no logical mistakes. Third, they are supported by a good body of evidence. Fourth, they're able to answer objections and clarify issues. And fifth, they're able to draw valid conclusions. And those are components of a good argument. And throughout the Bible, Jesus and the apostles continued to present compelling arguments and reasons why they should take his claims seriously. For example, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. New Testament scholar Leon Morris says this about John chapter 5. He says, nowhere in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship as we find in this discourse. Now, in chapter 5, Jesus heals a man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. And the Jews come up to him, and instead of celebrating, the authorities come up to him and say, well, who gives you this kind of authority? Okay? Who gives you this kind of, are, are you greater than our father Abraham? Are you greater than the law? Who gives you this kind of authority to say these things and to do these things? And here, Jesus presents his case. It's as if Jesus is standing in a courtroom, and he brings forth his witnesses right here. And he says, all right. I'm going to bring you five witnesses here on the stand. The Old Testament law required two. Jesus brings forward five. First one, he says this. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Okay? So first witness he brings forth is who? John the Baptist a recognized prophet in the land of Israel. Then he says in verse 36, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that my Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me, and that the Father has sent me. Witness number two, the miracles of Christ. God confirms his message and his messenger with miracles. 
And Jesus points to his miracles. Next witness, verse 37. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have not heard. His form you have never seen. Witness number three is God the Father. Witness number four, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness of me. Witness number four, the scriptures. And finally, witness number five. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Witness number five, Moses, the greatest of the prophets of Israel. No more powerful a witness could Jesus have brought to the stand than these five. Okay, this is a very compelling argument that Jesus brings forward in his defense. And the apostles did the same. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching at Pentecost. He is preaching to the Jews. And he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Peter points to the evidence of miracles first. Then he says, And this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Then Peter points to the resurrection. Third, verses 25 through 31, Peter points to prophecy, prophecy of Jesus Christ. And finally, 32 through 36, Jesus points to prophecy and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here you see our Lord Jesus Christ and Peter making a powerful case, reasons why people should believe in Jesus Christ. Now, we're called to do the same as our Lord did, as the apostles did. Often, it is not enough to simply present the gospel. Often, you need to present convincing evidence and reasons why people should believe. Now, we learned the components of a good argument. Here are some common errors Christians make. Okay, that I often see and that I have also made too often speaking on radio or speaking in front of a hostile audience. Number one, overstating the case. Okay, I hear a lot of Christians say, well, I'm going to prove Christianity is true beyond any shadow of a doubt. Hey, I'm going to answer all the questions. You're going to be 100% sure Christianity is true. Well, that's an impossible standard, okay? You need to show that Christianity is reasonable, okay? Not that it answers every single objection and there's absolutely no doubt or questions that you're going to have, all right? The goal is to show Christianity is reasonable, okay, and beyond any reasonable doubt. In court, how do we decide cases? Do we decide them based on a 100% certainty? No, we can never have that. We base it on what? Beyond reasonable doubt. That's what you need to show. 
Okay? Not that you can answer everything and that you'll have no doubts, but that Christianity is reasonable. That's what you need to show, okay? that you, we have a reasonable faith. Number two, arguing mostly from experience. Okay? You've got to believe in Jesus Christ because it's true, because I've experienced it, okay? because Christ changed my life. Well, if that's your only argument, okay, that's not a very compelling case. Why? Experience is subjective. If a person must accept your experience as true, then you must accept theirs as equally true and valid. Hey, this argument is good only if you've established your premise that there are valid reasons to support the claim that Christianity is true. Next, it's all about faith. Just believe. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is built on evidence. Biblical faith is taking a step in the direction where the evidence leads. Okay? It's not a blind leap in the dark. Biblical faith is examining the evidence and then taking a step in the direction where the evidence leads. Christianity is not a blind leap in the dark. It is a reasonable faith. When I was uh, debating the Rational Response Squad, you know, when they opened the debate on the radio, they said, well, we know how you guys are going to open this debate. Like every other Christian, we're going to present to you reasons why Christianity is not true. And you're going to respond by saying, faith, faith, just got to have faith, just got to have faith. All right? And they said, that's not a very good argument. A Buddhist can give you that argument. A Muslim can give you that argument. You just got to believe. Just have faith. That is not a good argument. And then when it was my turn, I opened and saying, well, I want to thank you for clarifying the issue. That's not biblical faith at all. Biblical faith is a reasonable faith. It's not a blind leap in the dark. It's taking a step in the direction where the evidence leads. Thank you for clarifying that issue for us. That's not biblical faith. Okay? And they were so surprised by that. That completely caught them off guard. Because most Christians say what? It's faith. Just got to believe. Blind leap in the dark. No evidence, just, just believe. Next, love. Love is all you need. Just love them. Okay? That's all you need. Well, love alone doesn't necessarily unite or bring people to belief in Jesus Christ. How do we know that? God loves and God loves perfectly. Right? Every day, he showers his love upon us. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world, he gave everything that he had, his only son. So does the whole world believe in God? Does the whole world believe in Jesus Christ? No. You see, love and truth go together. You cannot have one without the other when sharing Christ. The power of the Christian message is truth proclaimed and demonstrated in love. So those are some of the common errors there. Now, you can have good arguments, all right? But often, good arguments miss the mark. Okay? Often, good arguments fail. Why is that? Well, here's a couple reasons. Number one, the communicator. If the communicator comes across with an attitude of arrogance, 
aggression or cleverness, often the argument okay, will just simply bounce off. 1 Peter 3.15, it says, Give a reason for the hope that you have within you. And many people forget the last part of that verse. What's it say? With gentleness and respect. Or some of your translations read, with reverence. The same word for reverence is used in reverence for God. That's how we are to present our case. I remember early on, 20 years ago when I first started speaking, I was speaking on, is Jesus the only way to God? And there was a girl in the audience who stood up and gave me a strong challenge. She said, are you saying those without Christ will be forever in hell? There's no other chance? You know, and she was really intense and looking at me real intensely when she said it. And I thought, whoa, this, this girl is really challenging me. So I looked at her and I said, well, here's the logical reasons why all religions can't be true. Okay? Second of all, Jesus and the apostles spoke out against it. Third, only Jesus demonstrated the authority over sin and death and through the resurrection. And I went through it and just kind of just blew her out of the water. You know, and then she kind of looked at me and kind of upset and just kind of headed out the door. And I thought, well, must be a liberal or whatever, you know, angry atheist or something. Well, when I was done, I was walking outside of the auditorium and I walked by and I saw her. She was crying in the corner with her fiance. And so I walked over real close. I put my hand on her. I said, is everything okay? And he just kind of looked at me and said, well, her uncle just died. And you just told her her, her uncle went to hell. I stood back and I was in such shock. I couldn't even get myself to apologize. I just looked at them. I said, I'm sorry. And I turned and walked away. I locked myself in a room thinking, man, how arrogant and insensitive that I have gotten studying all this that I'd come across that way to her, not realizing perhaps the situation she was in. And I vowed that day, okay, hopefully, I'll always apply 1 Peter 3.15 always with gentleness and respect. Second, misreading your audience, speaking at too high a level. You lose the person you're talking to. You're, the person you may be talking to or the audience may lack the information to understand the argument that you are presenting. Or some may have been scarred by a bad experience in the past. And so not only are good arguments needed, but life as well, demonstrating to that person the love of Jesus Christ. So we must know as much about our audience and the person we're sharing with as we possibly can. Next, good arguments often fail because we don't understand the cultural background of the individual or our audience. One of the biggest errors we make is worldviews. This may be the biggest intellectual factor when we communicate the gospel and we make a good argument and it does not come across. No argument against a person's worldview will convince unless you first change their worldview. For example, a naturalist or an atheist says miracles are not possible. No God Therefore, there cannot be any acts of God. Therefore, the gospel message is dismissed immediately as irrational or illogical. Often, 
you must first establish the case that there is a God. If there is a God, then there can be acts of God. In the conversation we had the other day, the individual was saying, well, you know, the resurrection is a miracle, and I can't believe in miracles. And I said, well, you just stated you believe in a God. And he said, yeah. And I said, this God created the universe out of nothing. And he said, oh, okay. And I said, if God can create the universe out of nothing, how hard is it for him to resuscitate a body from the dead? How hard is it for this God, if he can create the universe out of nothing, to part the Red Sea? How hard can it be? If there is a God, there can be acts of God. You know, this whole gay marriage and abortion debate, it's really hard to win unless we can establish in our culture there is a God who has given us a universal moral law code. It's hard to say abortion is wrong or gay marriage is wrong unless we can say there's a universal moral law code given to us by a God or a moral lawgiver who has established that law code. And finally, good arguments can fail because of a sin issue or an individual moral issue. Augustine said this, Unbelievers love truth when it enlightens them, but they hate it when it accuses them. Often, people reject your arguments in the end, not because it's a bad argument, but for moral reasons. Perhaps there is a sin or a lifestyle that they are holding on to, okay, that they don't want to let go, that they know if they receive Jesus Christ, things will have to change because now they are morally accountable. Often, you know, when it comes down to it, after presenting a case, sometimes there's a moral reason that people finally come up and share why they can't accept Jesus Christ. One way to act, you know, when they are questioning you and you think there is ulterior motives or dishonest intentions, is to act as if the question is an honest question and answer it. Thus you show the depth of the Christian position and your graciousness. Another way to respond is with another question. If you feel the question is not sincere, you can often ask, why are you asking that question? Truth confronting a person often has two responses. They can be set free or it can harden the heart. If you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus gave some airtight arguments. They are solid arguments. But often, people did not believe. Why is that? Well, in many cases, it was pride. People would not surrender okay, their pride and bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And often, you can give good arguments, okay? but often it's the pride of the other person that refuses to acknowledge God and surrender their life to Jesus Christ. Second, this is what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than the light because 
their works were evil. Now, good arguments do have their limits, okay? Just because you have a good argument doesn't mean someone will surrender and bow their knee to Jesus Christ. Good arguments and apologetics can get a person to believe that Christianity may be true. But to get it to travel from the head to the heart, to get the person to believe in Christianity and surrender their life to Christ, that is a heart issue. That is a matter of the will. And that is where the Holy Spirit comes in. So the saying is true. You can get a horse to the water, but you can't make him drink. But you can certainly salt his oats, right? When you answer their questions, when you present compelling evidence and reasons to believe, often you spark their curiosity, all right? And they often want more information. And they're willing to dialogue with you more. I remember speaking with our good friend the other day at the restaurant. And at the end of the conversation, you know, I said, man, this was a great conversation. I really liked it because, man, you really are a good thinker. You've thought about these things. And he said, you know, he said, you're the only guy I can ask these questions to. Because when I show up to these Bible studies or whatever at my church, they kick me out. Why do you tell me, you know, quit asking these questions. Your questions aren't welcome here. He said, you're really the first guy I can sit down and honestly ask these kinds of questions. And I said, shame on those people. God wants us to question. God wants us to ask. He said, come, let us reason together. This concludes part one of Pat's message entitled, Constructing Your Case. If you missed any part of Pat's study, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to the entire message along with other great messages and interviews from Pat. Pat's ministry with the Pacific Apologetic Center relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by the message today, please let Pat know and consider partnering with Pat in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. This will help keep Pat on the air and allow him to proclaim God's message throughout the islands. So please consider partnering with Pat today by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Join us again next week for part two of Pat's message right here on Evidence and Answers. Oh, 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 oh,